This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets, where we look at all the financial news of the past week and work out what it means for you. I'm Laura from AJ Bell, and with me is Dan from Shares. Hello. Today we're going to look at the fund managers amassing a cash pile, the British brands that have lost their way, and how the most cautious managers have fared recently. And joining this week is Ryan Hughes, a fund manager at AJ Bell. Hi there. Welcome to your first time on the podcast, Ryan. Thank you very much. So, Dan, we are going to be talking about markets first of all. So it's been an interesting week with um, the big Brexit word featuring a lot in markets. So give us a quick rundown of what's happened. Yeah, obviously the EU's uh, sort of approved uh, the Brexit deal as it stands at the moment. That didn't really have too much of an impact on the markets. I, I guess everyone is still waiting for the parliamentary vote on the 11th of December to really see whether um, it's going to be sort of a, a bounce back in UK equities or whether it's going to have a, a lender shock. That's definitely one to, to keep your eyes out for. Um, I guess otherwise the big story has been the ongoing fall in the oil price, which matters for the FTSE 100 because it's uh, index, which is major constituents include Royal Dutch Shell and BP. Um, it also affects sentiment towards mining stocks as well, and they've been pretty bad um, this week not really helped by Trump making new comments, um, reiterating threats against additional tariffs on Chinese goods. Um, but actually, it's been quite a good week for Greg's. Um, it seems you know that we're all going back to buy sausage rolls and um, pizza slices. I don't know if you've popped in there, Ryan, for your, for your big lunch recently. Every now and again. Every now and again. And what's your favourite there? Sausage roll. Can't go wrong with that. I know. At that point where they keep it below a pound is uh, happy faces. But I guess at some point, over a pound, is that going to tip over Greg's? That's the end of the end That's of the world. That's when Ryan quits, quits Greg's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they, they've had they've had a really good week. Um, it's just people, they got the, got the proposition right. Um, but a company which perhaps isn't getting things right at the moment is Thomas Cook, uh, which, which had a pretty bad week. Bad profit warning, um, complaining about people... Um, buying holidays late and, and uh, very big discounts in in the industry um, and its net debt levels are considerably higher than the analysts have forecast. Um, and it sort of all, all sort of suggests what is happening with Tom's Cook as a business. You know, when I was a kid, it was a place where we always used to go to you know, find out about your holidays and it was that big trusted brand. It used to be in the FTSE 100 actually at some point. Um, but now it's actually worth less than card factory which sells greetings cards for 99p is also worth less than dairy crest which makes blocks of cheese i guess if you if you look at that in that context um now what on earth is happening to this business uh, you know, laura, laura where do you buy your holidays from i don't i feel like the the kind of high street um places that you go are a thing of the past for me now surely everyone gets everything online which i guess thomas cook has an online presence as well doesn't it but um yeah i'm certainly not going down to pick up my brochure and pick my my holiday accommodation from, <laughs> from the big brochure. Although I did love doing that as a child. Yeah, no, it, anyway, I, I do pass high street travel agents and it does amaze me. I do see people still sitting there wondering what, surely you could just do this on your phone rather uh, more convenient and faster than you could than sitting in a shop. But now you're right, Tom's Cook is online, um, but is, is it sort of package holiday model? Is that broken? Because I think people seem to just want to build things themselves. They 
they buy the flights. Um, Ryan, you're always going on an aeroplane, aren't you? So, <laughs> Do you like a bit of travel? I think you're absolutely right, though. The way that we buy our holidays has changed. You've got the likes of EasyJet and Ryanair. It's very easy to deconstruct your holiday and buy the component parts cheaper. People are very happy now renting accommodation online, renting a you know, villa in Spain, a villa in France, and an EasyJet flight, and suddenly you know, you've got exactly what you want, where you want, for maybe a price lower than a package could have given you historically. It's just right. I mean, Thomas Cook used to be sort of a trusted name. It also ran that Club 1830 holiday. Oh yeah, which ended recently. Yeah, I mean, I think they sort of said it's it's a, it's a bit out of date now. So, but they bizarrely replaced it with this thing called Cooks Club, um, which is a strange name. It sort of sounds like you're going to go cooking for the day. Yeah, or, it sounds or, like a chef's convention. Yeah. But I, I had a look on its website, and it just basically looks like a load of trendy kids. Um, Take, getting ready to take pictures and put them on Instagram of, um, you know, like, like a vegan meal. Nothing against vegans, but um, uh, and sort of very sort of hipstery sort of stuff. And it just seems odd um, if that's how they think that they're going to sort of connect with the next generation of travellers. Uh, I don't. I think the, the the business seems to have lost its way, um, and I think inevitably that's what happens, isn't it? I think it's very clear just having this conversation that we are not the target audience for that. <laughs> I think the use of the term "trendy kids" immediately rules you out yeah. from yeah. Cook's Club. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you if you look on the high street these days. Brands like WH Smiths, which uh, have been around for a long time, they still seem to find ways to to make considerable amounts of money. Um, you've got plenty of other brands that are still going. I think, I think what they're doing is that they're adapting, you know, they're, they're sharpening their proposition, understanding how trends are changing. Um, but I think inevitably there will be brands that are left behind. You know, you've got your Toys R Us, MFI, Woolworths. All, all these were used to be very big names, but they don't exist anymore. I'm not sort of suggesting that Thomas Cook is about to disappear and, um, and its business, its finances are on its knees. But um, you do have to wonder where that one is heading. Yeah, and it's, I guess it's about the kind of a business being able to constantly evolve and move with the times and they seem to be an example at the moment where they're slightly struggling to do that you mentioned Woolworths there though um there was an interesting um piece of research this week that looked at where so when Woolworths shut down it had 815 stores and it was looking at what those stores had been replaced with and I think that's like a real sign of where high streets have gone so most Woolworths stores became Poundland stores then Iceland stores or um, the discount store B&M Bargains. So I think that shows a bit where a lot of high streets have gone. So they've been replaced with these kind of big discount high street brands. And even some of the discount ones are are actually struggling themselves now. Mm. It's just this natural evolution of, uh, you know, what what could come next? They'll just stick a gym in it. I think I've certainly seen comments that... um, you know, the leisure experience is is taking priority over people's spending patterns. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one one thing I talking to property managers recently and they're certainly seeing not the death of the high street but the slow decline of the high street and looking for different ways of utilizing that space so gym is one thing that you mentioned uh, a lot of people are in talks with the nhs about getting more walk-in centers and doctor surgeries mm-hmm. actually on high streets as a way of uh, bringing people back with a with a footfall so certainly the way the whole nature of the way that we shop and whether it's by holidays or uh, by cards or anything else has certainly changed and they've got to get people back into coming into the the center of our towns and cities so obviously people are uh, watching their wallets um, in terms of where they do want to spend their money and actually it's kind of the same for fund managers as well that they're watching what they're spending their money on in terms of um, how they're allocating investors money um, so I know Laura you've been looking at 
um, what's going on with cash levels inside funds and, and sort of the bigger topic of um, you know, how much cash should you have in your portfolio as well? Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of the talk around Brexit means that quite a few fund managers and end investors have got a bit nervous um, or either of the market falls or they're waiting for a bit of a dip so that they can buy up bargains. So fund managers, there's a big um, kind of fund manager survey that looks at how fund managers across the world are allocating their money and cash levels at the moment are near record highs. They're around um, 5% for fund managers, which for the professionals to have that level is um, decently high. And we've also seen big investors, so Warren Buffett, for example, which everyone follows very closely, he's been amassing more cash. So I think investors have been looking at this of, well, if the professionals are doing it, is it something that I should be doing? And we've actually seen a few, I mean, Ryan will be able to chip in on this, but quite a few fund managers go to pretty high levels of cash. So one of the big examples is um, a fund manager called Marcus Brooks, who runs kind of multi-manager funds at Schroeder's. And he has 24% of his fund in cash at the moment, which is a massive amount. Um, He's actually had that position for quite a while. And his position is that he can't, basically everything's quite expensive and he wants to wait until things are cheaper and he's worried about about falls. But Ryan, do you speak to other managers that are kind of building up these cash levels? I mean, it's actually quite polarised when you talk to managers about how they think about cash because there are many managers that actually say my job is to invest in equities or fixed interest and it's up to the underlying investor to manage their own levels of cash uh, because they're often they're working towards a benchmark but there are others like you say talk about Marcus or if I looked at Troy Trojan uh, or the team at Ruffer who would think very much in much more of an absolute return fashion rather than a benchmark uh, approach and, and they certainly have been holding quite high levels of cash. Because I think that's one of the concerns that you touched on there is that investors think, okay, well, in my investment portfolio, I've got X percent set aside for cash, whether that's 1% or whether that's 15%. But then if you drill down into some of those funds, it's going to be that they've got way more in cash. If they're sitting in a fund that's got 25% in cash and they've got a decent chunk in that, then that impacts their kind of overall portfolio. Property funds are another one where, because property is obviously a very illiquid asset and takes a long time to sell. Property fund managers have got a lot of cash. So the legal in general UK property fund, for example, which has got more than three billion of investor money in it, has a quarter of the fund in cash, mm. which is there they have that to to meet investor redemptions. If people want to cash out, they've got money available to pay those investors out. But that is going to be, well, firstly, a bit of a drag on returns. But also, if you've got a decent chunk of money in some of these funds, you're going to end up with way more cash than you realise in your investment portfolio. Yeah, I think what's important there is really it highlights that you need to look beneath the bonnet and not just judge a fund by what its name is or where you think it's investing, but actually look at what it is holding, look at how much cash it's got, look at the type of underlying investments and take a view as to whether that's right for your circumstances rather than simply judging the name and saying that sounds exactly the right fund for me. And these cash levels are pretty easily found on fact sheets, aren't they? Absolutely. Freely available. And I would always say, if anything else fails, email the fund managers. The fund managers are very, very happy to get your queries. And if you have questions or thoughts about the funds and the strategies, uh, drop them a line and they'll they'll get straight back to you. Is there a a limit to how much cash a fund is allowed to to hold? Or is that just at the discretion of each each fund manager? So it's at the discretion of the manager. I'd say most managers like to invest fully invested. They like to have hold very little levels of cash. There are limits around how much cash you can hold with particular 
banks and counterparties within a fund. Uh, and so that is tightly controlled. So if what we find is if a fund does hold higher levels of cash, then that's actually spread across different institutions, which is sensible, prudent management to not hold too much money with one, one bank. Uh, so there are certainly quite tight limits around that. But in terms of the absolute levels, uh, no, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of flexibility. But f- funds are constrained by the sector rules. So if you're a UK equity fund you have to, and you want to be in the sector, um, you have to commit to having at least 80% of your assets invested in equity. So you can only hold up to 20% cash. So there are some, some limits around if you want to be in the sectors, but many managers uh, would ignore those rules if they thought that the right thing to do would be very defensive and hold higher levels of cash. And, and if you're an investment trust and you have um, where the fund manager has to report to a board of directors, um, is, is there a sense that if the fund manager was deciding to have lots and lots of cash, um, there is a risk the board could turn around and say, you know, what are you doing? You know, you're meant to be running this fund, say someone's bought it for a European equity fund. Um, and, you know, like Laura was saying, it's a bit of a drag on performance because it's, you, the money is not in European equities. Um, is there pressure on fund managers to change or um, is it sort of understood quite widely that um, they know best um, and if they think that the time is not right to be investing fully, mm. um, that they're allowed to get away with that, not get away with that strategy, pursue that strategy. I, I think what you need to look at is what's the underlying investment strategy of the fund? What benchmark are they trying to to beat and how are they trying to do that and over what time period? Uh, and when you answer those questions, it almost gives you that frame of reference to think about how they're likely to invest the underlying assets. Some managers that 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 think a long term about capital preservation are far more likely to hold high levels of cash than someone that's constantly trying to outperform, say, the FTSE All Share Index. Um, so there are different strategies. The important thing is communication. The underlying manager should communicate that investment strategy to the board if it's an investment trust, but also to the investors in the reports that they're putting out and make it very clear, particularly when they are holding higher levels of cash than perhaps would be perceived as normal. Because I think one of the things also that's worth pointing out is you're paying a fund manager money here and you pay them a fee for running your fund. And so while at the moment, if you've got your cash sitting in a bank, it's probably not really earning much interest unless you scout it around for the best deals. But at least you're not losing money. Whereas if a fund manager has a quarter of the fund in cash, you're paying a charge each year for them to hold a, what is a loss-making asset in, in real terms. Mm. So you're kind of paying for the privilege. So... I think that's not necessarily, if if investors are comfortable with that, that, then that's fine. But they should be aware of the fact that not only they're not making money on that asset, it's actually costing them as well. Yeah, I think there are two points there. One is fund managers that are holding cash because they think it's the right thing to do from an investment perspective. They're nervous about markets. They think there's volatility. They think assets will fall in value. Cash is a great way of protecting against that. I have little problem paying a fund manager a fee to make that active decision. I do struggle a little bit when I look at the property funds who are holding 20% around that level of cash simply to meet redemptions which may or may not come and still charging a fee on the entire value of the portfolio. That I would look at and say there's a strong argument that they should only charge a fee for the assets invested. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. And so then when we've been talking about kind of defensive fund managers or fund managers that have gone to cash, you've been looking at a whole other sector. So not necessarily those fund managers that have gone to cash, but those that are trying to invest 
defensively so that they protect against any market falls that might be coming. So how have they fared, particularly with recent stock market volatility? Yeah, I, mean, I think many of them have, have done have done well over the last few months. I mean, clearly we've seen you know, a big pickup in volatility in the second half of, of this year. We've seen the, the FTSE all share you know, down over 7% in the last six months. Uh, and that's a challenging environment for, for any manager to invest in. And of course, that's not just been limited to the UK market, but has been spread right across the globe in many respects, things like emerging markets have performed worse than that uh, this year. But those managers that have got a defensive mindset uh, are, are focused on capital preservation. We have seen that coming through uh, in the numbers. Uh, it's no surprise to look at uh, those managers that have done well and see that lots of those have got an income focus. What you find when you get times of volatility is that the income uh, and yield acts as a very nice cushion uh, when markets become particularly volatile. Uh, and we've seen that over the last few months. So if I look at a couple of examples of managers that, that have done well uh, in the equity income sector, Troy Trojan Income uh, has defended very, very well. They're an absolute return mindset uh, in their approach. They're yielding 4.2% today on the fund. So, uh, you know, good, healthy uh, yield on that. Uh, and have got big positions in stocks like Unilever uh, and Diageo. And actually, it's interesting looking at funds that have performed well. Unilever and Diageo are two stocks over this recent period of volatility that appear quite frequently uh, in those managers that have done well. So uh, another we looked at was uh, even load income. It's got 10% in Unilever, 10% in Diageo. Then two of those, those two stocks are not the most highest yielding stocks in the market, but the characteristic they have got is overseas earnings. Uh, and this period in the UK when we've seen volatility is we've seen sterling fall, and therefore the value of those overseas earnings has increased, and therefore stocks like Unilever and Diageo, uh, which sell all across the world a whole range of products, uh, those profits that get translated back into sterling uh, have, have been boosted by the currency move. Also, Linzel Train, which we know is a favourite for, for many, many investors, Linzel Train UK Equity, uh, another defensive uh, manager that invests in high-quality stocks, uh, again, Unilever, Diageo, London Stock Exchange uh, in the top 10 holdings. So I looked at some investment trusts with uh, sort of have a capital preservation stance. Um, capital Gearing Trust has done its total return year to date is about three and a half percent. If you compare that to the FTSE 100, which is down five percent, that, that's actually really good. Mm. Um, and you've got RIT Capital Partners, which is sort of a mixture of it wants to preserve its shareholders' capital, but also give some growth as well. That's up about the same sort of amount as well. Um, the one that, that stood out, which hasn't done well, was Ruffer, um, which is down about 5% so far this year. So kind of in line with the market. Um, so it's got gilts, it's got Japanese equities, North American equities, and a mixture of sort of stuff. So it, it sort of, does that sort of suggest that it, it's still, you know, taking a capital preservation approach still requires the fund manager to be making the right calls. It's not simply parking it all in gold and cash and, and boring stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. You've got to get the right investment decisions. You know, these kinds of stocks we've been talking about have proved their defensive characteristics over the last few months. But you mentioned gold. You know, gold has been a really difficult place to be over the last 12 uh, to 18 months uh, with the gold price now stuck around that 1200 level. And in this period of volatility hasn't really shown any level of defensiveness that we would normally have associated uh, with gold, and that's got a lot to do with the dollar. Uh, the dollar has really been driving markets, and the strong dollar has been holding the gold price back. So it perhaps hasn't behaved in a way that we would have normally expected when we've seen such volatility. Mm. 
But at what point do these kind of big consumer defensive companies and stocks get too expensive? If you, I mean, if you talked about some fund managers there that have got pretty decent stakes in them, and if quite a few fund managers are moving into them, are we getting to a point where where they're reaching their peak? Do you think? Well, I think what we would probably have to imagine is if let's let's imagine as difficult as it may be a, a, an excellent Brexit outcome, uh, and the UK economy gets uh, clarity. Uh, and and we assume that that, that we get GDP growth coming through again, I would fully expect these stocks to lag in that environment. So these stocks have proved their defensive characteristics, but if we got a kind of relief rally uh, in the market, I would fully expect other parts of the market to do well. We may see mid-cap stocks and small-cap stocks outperforming these types of managers, in which case they would lag their peers uh, in a strong reversal of the current sentiment. So it's, it's not a case of these managers that will do well in all environments. I think that's always very important to remember when you're looking at past performances, what what kind of environment has been right for them? If they've if they've done well in a period when they should do well, well, that, yeah, well done them. But also, you need to think before you invest about when will they do badly, uh, and try and give yourself that positioning before you've invested any money. So just before we wrap up this podcast, uh, Laura, you've been looking at one one eight, which is back in the news for bad reasons. Yeah, and I'm not sure I knew it was even still a thing. We all remember those annoying adverts from 118118 um, a while ago, but it's still a thing. But the regulator has now stepped in and said it's too expensive. Um, so it's the directory's inquiry line where you call up and you find out the number for whatever you need. Um, and so 118118 is the most popular of all of these services, and it charges £11.23 for a 90-second call. That's crazy. Which is so high. Um, and part of this is that it, it's been called kind of like a, a bit of a tax on vulnerable and older people because it's basically people that don't have access to the internet or don't have the wherewithal to kind of navigate computers um, that you still use this service. But I did some number crunching, and... That works out as more expensive per minute than a business class flight from London to New York. Crikey, that is incredible. So, I mean, obviously there's going to be a cap on how much allowed to charge, but um, has 1118 come responded and said um, you know, what it thinks of it? Or um, I don't think it has yet because the news is just out, but it, the um, regulator says it's going to save around save consumers around two million pounds. So then the the flip reverse of that is that it's going to cost. It's not just one one eight one one eight. It's other ones like it. Um, it's going to end up costing them that amount in their um, in their revenues. It's basically the the charge cap is taking it back to where prices were about six years ago, and it's still pretty expensive after the charge cap. But I think it's obviously these services they're being used less and less. There's a big decline in people using them as people get more internet savvy and so i guess during that time to compensate for that con- decline in customers they've just ramped up the costs okay thanks a lot for listening this week if you've got any suggestions for future topics you want us to cover or if you've got any feedback or comments then please do email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk thanks very much thank you thank you before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.